Well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me. Let's look together at the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. This morning we come to Genesis chapter 33. If you would begin turning there. I do hope that you will read over the little flyer in the bulletin and begin praying about whether you would uh, be interested in participating on that trip. Uh, You can sign up between now and the end of the year just to show your interest. And then in January, uh, when we have even more details about the trip, we'll have a big meeting with everyone interested and uh, talk about exactly what the details uh, of the trip are going to be and, and people can make their final decisions. Um, if it's not something that you feel called to do, if it's something that you think you know, is not something that maybe logistically is possible for you, then begin praying about what you can do to support the team that goes, whether it's giving financially or just joining us and, and praying each day for this city and this church. Uh, but I do hope that you'll keep those things uh, in mind. Now we are continuing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis, and uh, we're coming now close to the end of our study of the life of Jacob. Um, Now, Jacob continues to live on through the end of of Genesis, and uh, we'll see more of him when we come to our study of Joseph uh, a little bit later. Uh, But we're nearing the end of our time, specifically focused to Genesis 25 through 35. Before we read our passage this morning, chapter 33, I want to remind us of, of the context of what we've already seen. Namely, that Jacob is a twin Uh, He has an older twin brother, Esau, the firstborn, the the one to whom most of the inheritance and the blessing would have gone. As a young man, Jacob took advantage of Esau's foolishness and bought his birthright for a bowl of stew. Jacob also deceived his own father in order to steal Esau's blessing. We're talking about wealth We're talking about prestige. We're talking about position in the family. All of these were taken away from Esau by Jacob. And Jacob fled from Esau because Esau vowed to kill him for what he had done. And it was as Jacob fled that he had an encounter with God that forever changed his life. Jacob became a genuine follower of the true God. Now, he is not a perfect man by any means, and uh, tonight we will see in Genesis 34 some of the sin that still remains in Jacob's life. But he has changed. He's not the deceitful, self-centered rascal that, that he was 20 years ago. It's been 20 years since he fled his brother, and now he is returning. He has already sent messengers to Esau with great gifts, declaring to Esau, I want there to be peace between us. But his messengers have returned and said, Esau is coming to you, and there are 400 men with him. And so Jacob is afraid, and he prays to God, as we saw last week, and he spends the night before he meets Esau alone until a man comes in the darkness and begins wrestling with him. And we saw that this was no ordinary man, but but this was God appearing to Jacob as a man. And he blessed Jacob. Now, after that long and eventful night, the sun rises, and over the horizon, here comes Esau. So let's read chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put their servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. 
He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And therefore the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hemor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Well, this morning we are looking at the reconciliation which takes place between Jacob and his brother Esau. When Jacob fled 20 years ago, Esau had vowed to kill him. In this chapter, we see that peace is made between these brothers. Now, considering all the wrong that Jacob had done to Esau, we perhaps would have thought that theirs was a relationship which would always be marked by hostility and hatred. From a worldly perspective, we might have looked at these two brothers and said, these two brothers will never have peace. And yet, here it is. I know of a a pastor who did his best to lead his congregation for many years, and yet he was opposed time and time again in all that he did by a gentleman in the church. And this gentleman acted in a very unchristian way and made ridiculous and false accusations against the pastor, made life miserable for that pastor until he eventually left the church. Years later, that gentleman called up this pastor and said that God had shown him his sin He called and said, I am sorry for the way I treated you. He asked for forgiveness. It was a remarkable reconciliation that took place. I know of a married couple in which the husband left his family. 
He left his wife and he left his children. He moved out of the house. He became involved in another relationship. He said and did things that gave every impression that he would never come back to his wife. And his wife knew not what to do except to pray and to have her friends pray as well. Well, God heard those prayers and God broke that man and opened his eyes showed him what he had done and and what seemed to be a miraculous change of heart. He came back to his family. He recommitted himself to them. He renewed his vows to his wife. He began to get involved in church, something he had never done before in the past. It was a remarkable reconciliation. These things can happen. These things often or sometimes do happen. And Mount Hermon, this is a theme that should bring delight to us. We should enjoy talking about reconciliation. It should be dear to our hearts. After all, the greatest thing that has ever happened to us is that we were reconciled to our God. We had sinned against Him. There was enmity in our hearts against Him. We may have given God lip service, but we didn't love Him. Just the opposite. We set ourselves up against Him. We treated ourselves as God. We, we lived for our own glory and for our own honor, for the honor of self. The Bible says that we were once enemies of God. Enemies of God. We know what God can do to His enemies. We stood under the righteous wrath of God. His law had convicted us. We were guilty before Him. All that awaited us was for our time to come to enter into hell. And yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the hell His people deserved in their place and He bore it completely. As the risen Lord, He sent the Spirit into our crooked, depraved hearts and He changed us. He brought us to faith. He caused us to love God and honor God and bow before God. It is now the delight of our hearts to live for God's glory and to die to self. God has won our hearts. He is, he's overwhelmed our souls. He's, he's captured our love. Our sins are forgiven. And heaven awaits us. Best of all, we have God as our God and we are His people. Romans 5.1 is coming very soon. Before long, we will go back to the New Testament. We will pick back up in Romans 5, the very first verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Peace with God. Does this not bring happiness to your soul? Is this not the greatest thing that happened, has ever happened to you? And if it's not, I want to know what you think is better. I want to hear about it. And so this theme of reconciliation ought to be precious to us. We often say that children reflect their parents. Like father, like son, we say. Well, our father is a a father who loves reconciliation. He was willing to give his son for the purpose of reconciliation. And if that's the character of our father, should it not be reflected in his children as well? Should we not be a people who love peace? What God does on a macro scale, reconciling people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to Himself, we should do on a micro scale in our own lives as we pursue peace in every relationship. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. One of the truths that we see very clearly in this chapter is that reconciliation ultimately is a work of God. It is God who brought about this peace between Jacob and the brother he had wronged. We see this in several places. First, just remembering from last week in chapter 32, how Jacob humbled himself before God and prayed that God would intervene in this situation. Jacob feared for his life. And Jacob feared for the lives of his his wives and children. We saw last week how he pleaded with God for, for deliverance from Esau. And Jacob's prayer makes clear that he was looking to God for help. Jacob could do a lot of things, send gifts, bow before Esau, plead with Esau for peace, but Jacob did not have the power to change Esau's heart. If Esau was going to accept him, God would have to do the work. And so he prayed. And then second, see what happens in this chapter when Esau comes to Jacob. I mean, it's almost like the story of the father and the prodigal son. We're told that Esau ran to meet Jacob, the the one who had wronged him. He comes to his brother. He embraces him. He falls on his neck. He kisses him. There's weeping. What explanation can you give for what has happened in Esau's heart? Every passage that has spoken to us about Esau so far has depicted this man as a man who does not know the true God. This is a foolish man. Esau is a reckless man. We've seen that Esau is a man who is controlled by his lusts. And yet all of a sudden we get to chapter 3 and he's responding to the one person who has wronged him probably more than any other in his life and he's responding with love and mercy. How How do we give an account for this? And the only explanation is the grace of God. If God leaves us as we are in our fallen nature, we will never respond this way to people who have wronged us. Sin loves violence. Sin loves conflict. Two kids start fighting on the playground yard and suddenly there's the group around them. Fight, fight, fight. Due to our depraved human natures, we have a perverse tendency to enjoy conflict. Our hearts don't want peace. We'd rather wallow in our misery. We'd rather wallow in our self-pity. We'd rather wallow in our angry feelings. We may not be outwardly violent, but there is violence in our hearts. That's what Romans 3 taught us, remember? Describing all of humanity, Romans 3 said, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Listen, their feet are swift to shed blood. and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. This means that the only explanation... For Jacob, as a sinful human being, responding with love, in Esau, responding with love and mercy towards Jacob, the only explanation is that God has intervened. 
that a measure of grace has been given to Esau. It is only those receiving grace who pursue peace. It is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Yet here's the thing. Esau does not appear anywhere else in the Scriptures to be a converted man. Nowhere else does he appear to be a true follower of God or a member of Christ's people. In fact, all indications are that after this day, he continued to worship his pagan gods. He continued to live in immorality. And his descendants would follow in his footsteps. So how is it that this pagan brother of Jacob is experiencing this grace in his heart at this moment? Well, the answer is what we call common grace. Everybody say common grace. You see, God is not just gracious to Christians. God is gracious to all people. Every moment a fallen human being with enmity in his heart towards God lives and is not in hell is a moment in which God is giving grace to that person. God gives all sorts of grace to people who do not know Him and do not love Him. How many around us do not give a flip about God, yet God allows them to enjoy so many things, big and small? Unbelievers, hatred in their hearts towards God, and they know what it is to have houses and cars, to see success at work, to have children and grandchildren. Unbelievers, enemies of God, know what it is to to taste a fresh strawberry to enjoy the the marriage bed, to spend a quiet day out on a river. Enemies of God, just like we used to be, dear Christians, experiencing God's common grace. One of the primary functions of God's common grace is this one. It restrains sin so that people are not as bad as they could be. It restrains sin so that people are not as bad as they could be. If God just took the reins off of the human race with our twisted hearts and didn't intervene, we would have destroyed ourselves a long time ago. Part of common grace is that God intervenes in people's lives and restrains them, affects their hearts so that they do not act as wickedly as they might. Christian, do not be surprised when you see someone you know who is an unbeliever doing a good deed. Now we know from Romans 3 that fallen man can do nothing that is truly good. And later we will see in Romans that everything that does not proceed from a heart of faith is sin. But from an earthly perspective, unbelievers, like we used to be, sometimes do good things. There are atheists who give food to hungry people. There are many Muslims who love their children and sacrifice for them. There are people who live in rank immorality and yet give money to moral causes. There is a non-Christian soldier who lays down his life to protect the people of his country. There is a wicked man who forgives his brother who wronged him 20 years ago. These things happen, and they happen because of common grace. 
Now, what's the difference between the grace that we experience as Christians through Jesus and the kind of grace that others experience who do not know Jesus and live in disobedience towards Him? Well, the difference is this. Listen carefully. Christian, the grace that we have and that we live in was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. The only way that God can be just and bless us criminals with all of these incredible blessings is that our sins have been paid for. Jesus paid for them. And He did this by, our, by His death on the cross. Every blessing we have was purchased by Christ on the cross. This is not true for unbelievers. As long as they live, God is being gracious to them. God is giving them an opportunity to repent. God is giving them an opportunity to turn to Christ. Every second an unbeliever lives is another moment of common grace in which they can humble themselves and turn to Jesus for salvation. But there comes a point in which common grace ends. And when that wicked man or woman dies, they will have to pay for all of their sins in hell. And the fact that God was gracious to them second after second, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, this will only add to their culpability before God. Every moment they breathed was a free gift from God and they used those moments to disobey God, to dishonor God, to exalt themselves against God. They took His good gifts and used them for wickedness. It was God who did good in their lives, was gracious to them, and yet they still rejected Him. And thus their punishment will be all the more severe because of the graces they received in their lives and yet did not turn to God. Christians, the grace we experience was paid for by Christ on the cross. Unbelievers, the grace you experience today, if you do not turn to Christ, will be paid for by you in a place called hell. That is strong teaching, that is hard teaching. This is what it means to come to grips with the reality that the God of the Bible, the true God, is a God of holiness and justice, a God of righteousness. Could it be that there are some of us in here who are unbelievers? And right now you are living in common grace. You may have even grown up in church And you've had the awesome privilege of hearing the gospel preached thousands of times while there are millions who have never heard it once. Thousands of times you've heard the goodness of God, how He saves sinners, how He calls you to run to Him and and submit yourself to Him. You know of Jesus. You've been told of His wisdom and His love. You know the story of how He died on the cross. It's been preached to you that He is reigning, that He is the Lord over all, that He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And yet you still cling to your sin. You refuse God's merciful invitation to be saved. 
Day after day, you live with no regard for Christ. You live for self and the honor of self. Oh friend, will you continue to trample the good commands of God and the grace that He gives you? Will you spit in the face of the God who deals so kindly with you that He gives you the very breath that you are breathing this moment? Have you begun, as Paul would say, to presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Have you begun to assume that God will always treat you well regardless of the fact that you refuse to give Him your allegiance? If that is you, then Romans 2.5 is true of you. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. The call is to run to Christ, rest in Him, submit in Him, follow Him. Now, coming back to the point I was making, God is the one who brings about real reconciliation. We see it in Jacob's prayer in chapter 32. We see it in the common grace that is happening in Esau's heart as he approaches Jacob at the beginning of chapter 33. We also see it at the end of chapter 33 in the way that Jacob gives glory to God. He buys this land in Canaan here near the city of Shechem and he builds an altar. And he calls the altar El Elohe Israel. Literally, God. The God of Israel. Israel is Jacob's new name. And this name declares that this altar that he is building is an altar devoted to the, to the worship of the true God. Who is the true God? The God of Israel. The God of Jacob. The one who delivered him from Laban. The one who has just delivered him from his brother Esau. Chapter 33 ends on this theme of worship because it is God who brought about the peace. So the implication for us is this. If there is anyone in our lives with whom we need to be reconciled, we must begin by looking to God for help. This is serious business. I asked this last Sunday, and I'll ask it again. Is there anyone in your life with whom you are not at peace? If there is discord between you and another person, then the best way for you to worship God and honor God is for you to do everything you can to bring about peace in that relationship. Jesus said, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, pursuing reconciliation in your relationships should be a priority. Don't come and claim to worship God on Sunday if you are not pursuing peace in your relationships on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, 
If there is a relationship that is broken and reconciliation needs to be made, then you need to acknowledge your need for God. He is the one who brings peace. Go to Him in prayer the way Jacob did. Look to His Word to guide you in the process of pursuing peace. Now, as we look to God's Word for help in pursuing peace, we find a couple of helps here in Genesis 33. For example, I think God teaches us here in this chapter that when we're seeking to be reconciled to someone, we should be humble before them. We should be humble before them. Notice how Jacob over and over again shows humility before his brother in this passage. Even in the way he approaches Esau. We're told that he he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his father. And this was not a a, a little bow, okay? In, In the Hebrew, this kind of bowing refers to going so low to the ground that your forehead and your nose touch the ground. Seven times Jacob bowed this way before his elder brother. It was the way somebody would bow to a superior, even to a king. Remember, part of the blessing that Jacob had stolen was that his mother's sons would bow to him. And now here he is bowing to his brother. Friends, whenever we are pursuing reconciliation, whatever our part in the conflict has been, whatever we may feel is rightfully ours, we need to remember Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Matthew Henry says that being humble and submissive goes a great way towards turning away wrath. He says many preserve themselves by humbling themselves. The bullet flies over the one that stoops. We also see humility in the way that Jacob speaks to Esau. Esau looks at the family of Jacob and he says, Who are these with you? And Jacob responds, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Jacob speaks of God's grace to him. He doesn't claim to be worthy of these children. And he speaks the same way when he talks about all his wealth. He doesn't say, Look at how much I've earned. He says, Look at what God has graciously given to me. He refuses to exalt himself before his brother. He calls himself Esau's servant. Even when peace has been made and he's trying to disengage from Esau because Esau's going one way and Jacob needs to go another way, we see that Jacob goes to great pains to not offend his brother, but to be humble before him. Over and over again, he calls him, My Lord, my Lord. And by the way, this is a mark of true repentance. Because 20 years ago, Jacob showed no respect for his older brother. And now, here he is showing great respect for his older brother. It's one thing to be sorry about something you've done in the past. It's another thing to actually change and sin no more. Jacob here is showing the fruit of repentance. We see not only humility here, but we also see a great willingness on Jacob's part to do everything he can to right the great wrong that he did to his brother. Look at verses 8 through 11 in particular. Verses 8 through 11. Remember, Jacob had 550 animals of breeding age come to Esau before he did. 
And Esau asks him about this huge company that's come, these 550 animals that have come to him. He says, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob is very honest. To find favor in the sight of my Lord. Here's Jacob's desire, that he will be accepted by his brother, that there will be peace between them. And Esau responds. Esau's response shows common grace. I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob will have none of it. He insists, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept this present from my hand. I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. How interesting. That Jacob says that seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of God literally hours after he just saw the face of God. The idea seems to be that Jacob sees God's hand at work in the way that Esau has accepted him. Thus, this gift to Esau that he is insisting that Esau take is almost like an offering of worship. He wants Esau to have these gifts because God has been gracious to him. Because he had wronged Esau so badly 20 years ago. He wants to do what he can to show thanksgiving to God for this peace and sincere repentance towards Esau. He's willing to do whatever necessary to make things right. Mount Hermon, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for your relationships? When you are reconciled to God, it came at a cost. A cost to God as He gave His Son and a cost to you. Because coming to peace with God means dying to self and dying to the worship and service of self. And so if you're going to be reconciled in your relationships, there will often be a price to pay. Think about those in your life whom you have wronged, with whom you need to make peace. What is the price you need to pay? And are you willing to humble yourself to the place of paying it? Are you willing to do whatever is necessary for you to right the wrong and show real repentance to that person? Remember Zacchaeus? Up in the tree. Goes to the house. He's converted. Tax collector. He'd been defrauding all of these people. He becomes saved. And what does he do? First, he takes half his goods and gives them to the poor. And then second, he goes to all the people he had defrauded and he gives them four times more than what he took from them. And Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house. Friends, I do not know why in God's providence we landed on this passage on this Sunday morning. But it seems likely to me that there are people in here Some of us, who we have people in our lives that we need to be reconciled to. We have relationships where peace needs to be pursued. Is that you? Will you pray the way Jacob prayed, asking God to help? Will you look to God's Word for guidance and wisdom in how to pursue peace? Will you humble yourself before the one you've wronged? Will you do whatever is necessary to show real repentance? Will you be a a peacemaker? Let me close this way. What about when someone has wronged you? 
As Christians who have been forgiven by our God, should we not be quick to forgive those who have hurt us? If someone comes to you wanting to be reconciled, how should you respond? God had every right to condemn us. Instead, God accepted us. And as we have been forgiven much, how dare we not forgive others for what they've done to us? Mount Hermon, we long to be a church where the glory of God is being shown in us in a mighty way. If we want the glory of God to be seen here, that means we need to be a forgiving people. We are sinners in this room. Amen? As we live life together, you're going to have lots of opportunities to forgive one another. You will have lots. The call of Scripture, the call of your Lord is learn to love forgiveness. Learn to love extending forgiveness to others. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Says Paul in Colossians. Forgiveness. I will not dwell on the incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident without permission. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Friends, who do you need to forgive? Parents, are you teaching your children how to confess their wrongs to others, how to ask forgiveness, and when possible, to do whatever is necessary to make things right? And parents, are you teaching your children to forgive? All of this is because of the great reconciliation we have in Jesus Christ. Look to Christ. Dwell each and every day in the amazing grace that we have received. Be freshly astounded every day at what God has done for you in Christ. And then, with your heart full of wonder at the mercy that has been given to you, Show mercy to others. May God be glorified in all our relationships. Amen? Let's pray. And so I would call us all now to spend some time thinking about what we've heard. Spending some time talking to our Father. Asking Him what needs to change in your life because of this word.